We all use credit cards. We all go to the bank. And today we are exploring the payment system first. Mike Bratz, who is with ACI Worldwide. First and foremost, we're a software company. So we provide technology to the payments industry. The people who want to pay, whether it's a consumer in a store looking to buy something or online or a business looking to pay another business with the sources of those funds, which are most of the time in bank accounts, but with some of the new payment methods, they can that those funds can sit in other places. We basically allow that money to move from where it needs to be to where it needs to go. Um, and we serve all of the participants in the payments business. So whether you're a merchant, whether you're a bank, whether you're a processor, or whether you're a, a utility, which we call, you know, we would call them a biller looking to help uh, consumers pay their bills online. We serve all of those participants in the payments ecosystem. And our second guest is Dr. David Bray. Uh, in addition to different hats that I wear, I'm with what's called the People-Centered Internet Coalition. I serve as executive director. Vint Cerf, uh, one of the co-creators of the internet, plus Malin Fung are our co-founders. And we seek to do demonstration projects that are community-led and measurably improve people's lives using the internet. As a first question, could you tell us a little bit about just sort of what are the what are those sources and what are the sort of data volumes we're talking about here when you're trying to help with the transactions and make sense of what's occurring? Yeah, I think when we talk about the payments industry, I think first of all, it should be noted that there are really at the simplest level, there's two types of payments, right? There's a cash payment, um, and then there's everything else which we consider to be digital payments. So whether it's whether you're using a credit card, whether you're using Apple Pay or some other means of payment. The, the vast majority of those payments are digital payments, and that's a growing percentage of payments around the world. To, to put some scale to it, um, in this year, in 2019, globally, uh, one, let's just use round numbers, 1.8 trillion electronic payment transactions will occur around the world. So just you know, put, put some scale to that, you divide that by the roughly seven and a half billion folks on earth, that is for every person on earth, about 250 transactions a year. It's not quite one a day, but we're getting close. So it's big and it's growing quickly. Um, and it's really, it's payments are how commerce happens, right? No matter whether you're a consumer looking to buy a good or service, whether you're a business looking to pay for supplies or whether you're just trying to pay your you know, friends for the dinner out the other night, that's payments. And so it's happening all the time, every day and the, and the volumes are massive. So there's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of innovation around security as well, which is I know one of the topics we're gonna to get into, but the threats to the payment infrastructure are growing and, and so is the innovation around protecting that infrastructure and those systems and that movement of money. Um, and you know, even the cloud, the cloud has become a big source of innovation where you have uh, participants in the ecosystem, whether it's a bank or a merchant who, who in the past wanted to operate their own payment systems for a variety of reasons are saying, you know what? No, we can let some other trusted third party run that for us in the cloud so that we can focus on what it is we do. So I would say there's innovation happening all over. Can you give us a sense when you talk about sort of the challenges with security or, or fraud detection or things such as that, just how fast do you have to be to make a go, no go decision on a transaction? And what are sort of some of the approaches you apply to the data that you can talk about that help inform whether something is suspicious or needs to be held up? Or, or warrant further examination? Yeah, well, one of the things I like to always start out when we kind of have this kind of conversation is, you know, the bad guys can try a lot and they only have to be right once to, to, to be successful. The good guys have to be right every time. And of course, 
you know, no matter how hard we try, that's impossible. But but you, you talked about the speed of this decisions. And one of the things that's become really important in the modern payment system is the ability to do real-time threat, you know, detection and prevention. And in our world, that means uh, for a credit card payment, just take your typical credit card payment with a consumer standing at the grocery store, they insert their card. We've got about 100 milliseconds uh, to make that decision. So, and the vast majority of those decisions are truly, you know, go or no go within that 100 millisecond window. There's a small percentage of those transactions and, and you know, maybe you as consumers have experienced this that do, do get deferred to manual review and we put a bit of a closer uh, microscope on those and that may, you know, cause some issues and cause some friction, which we try to avoid, but it's fast. And if you think about, you got 100 milliseconds to do it and we're talking about, you know, billions of transactions daily that are happening. It's a, it's a massively scaled problem. What are the, the skills internally when you think about talent management that's required on your side in order to build these kinds of systems? Yeah, there's been, you know, the, the, the old way of doing fraud prevention was heavily reliant on static rules, right? So if this happens, then say no. If that doesn't happen, then let it go. Blacklists and whitelists were common kind of forms of rules. In given the scale and the speed, we're much more reliant on uh, advanced analytics, whether that's machine learning, whether that's AI. And so, in order to keep up, for those of us in the payments business who are the good guys, um, we have had to invest heavily in um, data science professionals joining our ranks and helping beef up our fraud pre prevention systems. Um, there are computer science skills that are very good at building the scale and the security we need to protect those systems. And, you know, I would say there is definitely a war for that kind of talent out in the industry. And these folks can be very hard to come by. The people can work just about anywhere as long as they have the skills and the talent necessary to provide their lens. And so it's good to hear Mike commenting about uh, data science and, and machine learning as being something they're trying to incorporate. And I guess I would just say, are, are there different parts of the world where you're looking for your talent? Or do you have thoughts about um, how you can bring on people of all ages that if they have the skills can help uh, help with your efforts? Yeah, I mean, I would say we if, if you have the skills and the desire, we're, we're open to it. I, we're not necessarily looking for it in specific regions. We are, you know, we have technology professionals around the globe. We have offices in 40 countries. And I think if you look at other participants in the payments ecosystem, not just us, I would say it's probably similar. They're just looking for good talent. There's a shortage of that talent. I love your idea of training up um, you know, other communities to help build that talent base. I think it'd be a welcome, a welcome thing, not only in the payments industry, but probably just in, in, the, in the technology industry as a whole. Can you classify the kinds of threats that your systems face on a regular basis? Are there a few different categories? Yeah, I, I think I would put it in three categories, I think. I think the first is probably what most people traditionally think of as, you know, cyber threats. And that's, that's really um, either attacks on and thefts of data or disruptions of the system itself so that the system can't operate the way it's supposed to. So those are kind of traditional cyber threats. The second category is, you know, theft of goods or money, right? Just outright fraud and, and payments fraud, whether you're stealing money or stealing goods using somebody else's credentials. And then the third area that's also really important is 
anti-money laundering, right? So the bad guy's trying to hide the movement of money um, because it's either illegal or it's supposed to be reported to regulatory authorities and they want to kind of fly under the radar. So those are really the three big categories that I think most participants in our industry are, are looking out for. So to get ahead of the curve or, or a question about, I mean, are you seeing, and with money laundering or fraud, are you seeing different different sort of uses of different currencies, both fiat currencies, and is there anything you're doing to watch possibly what might be happening in the future with cryptocurrencies since they could be used for fraud or money laundering just as well as real world fiat currencies as well? Is that something that, that you're thinking about on the horizon? I think for sure, and I think we've seen a rise you mentioned money laundering um, as you know cryptocurrency and moving money around. Certainly that, I think if you go back 15 years, there was a big push for anti-money laundering regulation and prevention. And I think as an industry, we got it kind of under control. And then in the last few years, and some of it is because of the rise of some of these new currencies and some of the rise of the new technologies that are in the hands of the bad guys, we've seen a resurgence in, in, in AML or anti-money laundering. And so that's absolutely on the horizon. I would say the other thing we're seeing in the fraud world is, you know, for those of us in the United States, we're just now getting used to the chip technology in our cards, right? And that has, that has provided a, a new and good level of protection for the use of cards. And it's pushed a lot of the fraud online where the card isn't physically present. So a bad guy with stolen information can go on to a website and make a purchase. And that type of online fraud, whether it's traditional e-commerce sites or even in, in mobile payments, is really on the rise. And it's something that I think the whole industry is, is reacting to. And there's a lot of state of the art happening to go after that online fraud. What about state of the art among the criminals? And to what what is their level of sophistication in terms of using automated methods and data such as machine learning and various types of, of AI techniques? I would say their level of sophistication is very high. Um, they have, you know, they are, we talk a lot about being nimble and agile in the technology industry. They are extremely nimble and agile. The other thing they've got that we're somewhat limited by on the, on the payment side and on the good guy side is they collaborate. They work together and they specialize, right? You've got guys who are really good at breaking into systems. You've got guys who are really good at stealing the data. And then you've got guys who are really good at making use of that data. All of them are using automation. All of them are using AI. They're trying to mimic the behavior of good consumers so that they are less detected. All of that can be done with technology. And they, you know, frankly, it's pretty impressive how well, they've embraced it and capitalized on it. And that just, you know, raises the bar for those of us trying to protect the system. Are there any examples that you can maybe reference that, that where something looked like it was benign or something looked like it was something that was being caused uh, possibly by humans? And then upon deeper investigation, you, you discovered that this was something that was either more automated in nature or was something much more sophisticated in, in terms of either the, the criminals or and or possibly nation states doing something that 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 that, that at the surface looked like it was just normal human behavior. Well, yeah, let me give it a shot. I think one of the things we've seen in the consumer arena that requires a fair bit of sophistication, and it also requires some really unsophisticated last mile behavior, which is, I think, an interesting combination. So one of the things that a lot of merchants and retailers have been offering um, 
in the new digital world is you can buy something online and pick it up in the store. And what the bad guys have figured out is that the, there is a time window that they have to, to act that has made it very difficult for the protection systems to, to kind of figure this out. So basically what they do is they sit in the parking lot of a Best Buy, they go online with stolen credentials, they make the purchase and basically say, I'm gonna pick it up in the next 15 minutes. They immediately walk into the store, walk out with the big screen TV and they're off before the system can really realize that that wasn't the, the authorized card holder. And that the upfront piece of that, to get the information, to know what their time window is, to know what they need to do to mimic the, the good behavior is highly sophisticated. The walking in the store in the next 30 seconds and walking out with it is unsophisticated, but you know that's how they make off with, uh, with their goods. In terms of automated attacks, are you seeing that? or? Automated attacks specifically based on machine learning and the availability of data and sophistication with data. We're certainly seeing, you know, given the data breaches that are well, you know, well publicized these days, we're seeing bad guys develop techniques where they, you know, maybe they've stolen, let's just make up a number, 5 million records. They have developed technology that allows them to very quickly cycle through those 5 million records and figure out which ones haven't already had the passwords changed or haven't, you know, the, the, the account holder or the card holder doesn't even know that the information has been breached. They can go to, they, they know which websites are vulnerable. They can quickly go to those websites and cycle through those 5 million in a matter of minutes. And like I said, they only have to be right once. They don't have to be right 5 million times. And they, you know, they... They get what they're what they're after, and that level of sophistication to be able to cycle through that volume of data and quickly move on to the next one and avoid some of the bot detection techniques that you see on websites is is highly sophisticated. And you know they know what types of devices to use to do this. They know the IP addresses and how to shift IP addresses very quickly. So it's a really it's a combinatorial sophistication of different techniques and high volume data. So, so Mike, I guess, you know, this is quite fascinating. I mean, what you're sharing, and it, and it is sort of akin to an arms race. And, and so I guess my question would be, if you look to the next five, five years in the future, three to five years, and you see that obviously these actors that are doing criminal activity will accelerate their activity and their efforts, what gives you hope that you can share on, on the good guy's side that, that we'll be able to keep up, if not find other ways to make sure we stay one ahead of the curve, because it seems like you're guarding a 500 mile goalpost and all I have to do is kick it in one place. I mean, what gives you hope? Our industry is innovating pretty quickly as well. And I think we have figured out that the innovate, you know, there is no silver bullet. So you need to take a multi-layered approach. So what, you know, banks, processors, merchants even, and, and other players in the, in the ecosystem have figured out, hey, this is, this is a, an important cost of doing business. It's not something I'm trying to avoid anymore. And that's not the same as it was. <laughs> the other thing that gives me hope is consumers um, and businesses have decided they do want to be bothered when something bad is detected on their account. It used to be they didn't, hey, that's your problem. You protect me, you deal with it. Now we're bringing consumers into the loop and saying, hey, allow me to set limits. Allow me to get notifications, whether it's a text or an email when something fishy is going on. Or text me a code before you know uh, purchases are authorized on my behalf. That slight level of friction, which increases the level of protection, is something that consumers are embracing. So I think that gives me hope. Um, 
and and then I you know I would say you know frankly the government we 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 talked about state sponsored bad guys but on the good side the government has woken up to this problem and I think they can be a partner to industry to help solve this problem because you know the payments infrastructure the financial services infrastructure is really a it's a national um, asset that needs to be protected, much like you'd protect, you know, an, an energy grid or something else. So it, I think there's an important partnership there. It is recognizing that, like you said, financial infrastructure, it's a critical infrastructure and it's vital. And, and, and the other thing that I also love that you said is it's about not, not introducing a lot of friction, but a subtle amount of friction that if that in our quest to have things become frictionless, we may discover that it's slid off the rails. But if there's a little bit of a friction that asks for a one-time code or, or a notification that you've hit a limit, uh, and is this really you? Uh, I love that you said that, Mike, because that, that really emphasizes how people can take ownership of this and not assign it to solely being the problem for someone else to solve, that we can all be a part of it in a people-centered solution. People who've had their accounts hacked or taken over know what a hassle it is to kind of get back up and running, get a new card issued, whatever the, 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 the situation may be. So... I think part of it is to kind of learn, learn by experience, but hey, I think we're in a much better place than we were five or 10 years ago. Mike, you are providing the infrastructure and a variety of different capabilities to financial institutions, mm -hmm. but, you, but the consumer then is ultimately dependent on the financial institutions to implement those features. And yes. so how does that balance work. So you may provide the infrastructure, but if the, if my bank doesn't hasn't built the software or take advantage of it, I'm out of luck. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. And I would say banks and merchants alike have responded to, I mean, I think they view security as an opportunity to build a better relationship with their customers. Um, and potentially an opportunity to differentiate themselves from their competition in how good a job they do with it. So you're absolutely right. You know, it is incumbent upon your bank or your favorite merchant or your favorite e-commerce site to implement it. But I think we have moved past um, the days where they resisted that and they've embraced it and they're now trying to build out and fill little gaps. But I do, I also think that they are viewing, you know, especially in, in, with, with, in the merchant world and the retail consumer um, spending world, they have seen that consumers want to have that trust, want to have that security, that when I go to that website, um, I, I, my information is going to be protected. And so they're using that as an opportunity to build a closer relationship and kind of have a higher level of consumer engagement using security. We have a question from Twitter. Uh, Megan Windell asks, says real-time payments are becoming a bigger deal. The Fed just announced its scheme more important. How does the fraud conversation change when we're not talking about credit cards, but real-time payments? It's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, it is a great question. Um, yeah, real-time payments are, are, they are a big deal. Um, right now, today, they're a bigger deal in, in other countries than they are in the U.S., but it truly is coming to the U.S. And I think the Fed's announcement that they're going to stand up their own network for real-time payments is going to push that along. Um, the thing about real-time payments is just as the name implies, the money moves immediately. So it settles and clears in real time. And once it's gone, it's gone. Unlike other payment methods, and that does include credit and debit cards and other, there is somewhat of a delay that allows us to take action 
and there is a you know a chargeback process if something is determined to be fraud. With real-time payments, it's gone and it's much more difficult, if not impossible, to get it back. And so th that raises the bar on our ability to detect fraud in that 100 millisecond window, because that's about all we're going to have. And the other thing is, is these are truly different payment rails. In other words, it's not riding the same network that your credit card transactions are. And so these new networks have, you know, different configurations, um, different capabilities, and to make fraud prevention work within that environment, we're going to have to use different techniques. So it is going to kind of, you know, create a new arm of the fraud prevention world as these new real-time payments come on. Luckily, we do have some experience in other markets like the UK and India, um, Indonesia, where real-time payments have really taken hold. So we're getting our experience that we can then apply to, you know, countries in Europe and the US when that comes on. Going further in, the, in, in that direction, Mike, uh, do you find that in those cases where you're doing real-time payments in other countries, are you having to collect additional information in terms of possibly, you know, is a person willing to share their location for that time period or that their phone's nearby or does a one-time code? Is it, are there other factors that you're having to assemble precisely because you have that smaller window and it's that critical go, no go in a much more tight time frame? Are you finding there's other factors of data you need to have? Yeah. And the good news is that the, the new real-time payment schemes have explicitly factored that in. So it's, you know, without getting too technical, it's a new data standard that allows for much more data to come along with the transaction. That additional data, those additional data fields, if you will, allow us to do a much better job determining whether this is, you know, legitimate or illegitimate activity. So that's helpful. They, I, they were smart when they designed those data standards that allow us to do that. And um, so I would say the good news is that, that they built that into the system and now we can take advantage of it. As far as we're concerned, when it comes to detecting fraud, more data is better. Um, we now, because of big data technologies, because of machine learning, we can handle that kind of scale. And so the more signals we can get to help determine whether that's you, really you, David, or really you, Michael, hey, we'll take it. We have another question from Twitter, another really good question from Zachary Jeans, who asks, what are the top sources of threats uh, in terms of, say, countries, regions, or groups that you see? Can you, can you categorize things that way? We see a lot of fraud from Eastern Europe, from um, Brazil, from China. Um, it just happens to be where there are, you know, there are ecosystems of, of people who figured out how to do some of the things they need to do to attack the systems. But really, truly, you know, you're seeing the threats come from everywhere. Uh, but I would say that the, the places I mentioned at the start are where we see a vast predominant uh, uh, predominance of the of the fraud coming from. And, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion about, you know, we, we talked about the bad guys collaborating. Well, collaboration is one thing through, you know, dark networks and other things. But, you know, are, is there state sponsored attacks going on as well? And I think there's a lot of discussion about that. And I think a lot of smart people who really study this believe believe that it is going on as a way to disrupt you know, disrupt economies and disrupt systems around the world. It is getting harder and harder to determine the actual location of where, you know, where messages on the internet are coming from. So yeah, it's, it's one. So that's why it's, you know, location is one thing. There's other things we can use to kind of piece together. Well, it looks like they're coming from, you know, the, the, the same state or the same region, but 
Are there other things we can use to determine that they're probably not? If I could pull a little bit further on that too, because what at the end of the day you're talking about is identity online and yes. uh, having the opportunity to work with Vince Cerf who helped with uh, co-creating TCPIP. He said, you know, one, TCPIP was always a draft spec and it was meant to be updated. But one of the things they didn't include in that specification was an identity layer. And so, Mike, I'd be interested, I mean, in some respects, when you get into the determining, is this really Michael, is this really me, is this really you trying to make that payment, you're getting into identity. So is that something where you see maybe innovation in the future might be helping people take back some ownership of what their identity is online and making sure that it's, it's truly them when they do financial transactions? Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. I mean, digital identity is a big issue. It's actually much bigger than just the payment system. Within the payment system, we have there is a concept that we talk about that we refer to as your as a token. So right. So instead of your actual card number being used to flow through the transaction and, and exposing that card number to all the places where it could get compromised, that it's actually converted to, you know, a code, which we call a token, and that's used that token is, can be very closely associated with your digital identity, which represents maybe more than just how you spend money. And I think so there's a lot of discussion about how we map that token to that digital identity so that we really can verify if it's you. Because if, you know, listen, if we can really have a great confidence in your digital identity and your payment token, we're pretty much going to leave you alone because you're, we've determined you're a good guy. It's the bad guys we want to focus all of our energy on. And so, um, there is a lot of innovation, a lot of investment going on, both within and outside of the payments industry around that concept. So this notion of identity is so inextricably bound to payments. Does that, in effect, mean that in addition to the mechanics of transferring payments back and forth, you are almost equally involved in, in the identity business? Is that a fair statement or not really? The term we use in the payments business is authentication, right? Do we know who you are? Are you who you say you are effectively? And that, you know, that's, that's identity. And uh, the first step in really any payment transaction is authentication. And there's a lots of different ways to do that. Some of them, you know, involving, you know, texting you a code, kind of that's, you know, out of band authentication. But there are other things like biometrics, right? Facial recognition, fingerprints on your, you know, your iPhone, that kind of authentication becomes very closely associated with your identity because it's literally, you know, part of your physical being and who you are. So yeah, there's, it's, it's intimately linked. Another question for you, Mike, is, is we've seen some parts of Scandinavia, um, Northern Europe, trying to move towards truly cashless societies. And so yeah. I'd be interested in your thoughts about the likelihood of that happening more globally and, and on what time horizon because there are some that say if we move off of cash, in some respects, cash is used for a lot of illegal activities or, or it's actually stolen from you because it is hard to track. So do you see cashless societies as something that's more likely in the future for other parts in the world? So the answer to that is yes. Um, I think the trend is headed that way. It's probably a long, slow arc globally. To me, one of the most interesting examples of cashless society and quick movement is India. So within the last couple of years, you know, the uh, very strong government-led uh, action to move to a cashless society, and you're talking about a billion people um, who were heavily dependent on cash, and it, I think, by all intents and measures, it's been a big success, and I think it's a big, been a big success for a few reasons. Um, one was 
you know, the government really got behind it. Number two, the banks got behind it, um, maybe with a little help from the government. Number three, they made it easier on consumers and merchants to move to cashless. And one of the, the factors that was in play there was a very high percentage of Indians had a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. And they made the new payment method mobile centric. They have a new payment method that, that, that we call UPI in India. And they made it really easy to access, use, load funds into onto your mobile phone. And all of a sudden, every Indian with a mobile phone in their pocket, which is the vast majority of them, um, has access to this new frictionless, modern, secure payment system. We've seen the participation in that system grow gangbusters, and it's only growing faster and expanding to more and more parts of the country. And it's been a real success. So I, you know, I think if a, com- a, a country as complex and as large as India can do it, we're going to see it in other places as well. And one of the side benefits that, that I know that's been seen in India and other places in the world, I was, I was in Afghanistan for a while, and people started receiving their payments directly by mobile phone. And actually, in some cases, they came back and said, when did I get a salary increase? And the answer was they had never gotten a salary increase. It's just when it was cash, 20 or 30% was being taken off the top before it ever got to them. And they didn't actually know that they weren't getting their whole salaries. And so there's a huge benefit to reducing graft as well when you go to electronic cashless payments. Yeah. And, you know, that feeds one of the goals of, of this is particip- right, raising participation in the, you know, in the kind of out in the clear banking system. And I think if people see those kind of benefits, whereas before they may not have necessarily trusted the system, I think they say, hey, this is there's actually a real benefit for me here. So it's, you know, I think it's a win win. Mike, you spoke earlier about the role of nation states using the payment system to try to undermine our economy. And we hear so much in the news right now about fake news and social media, fake social media accounts. And I'm wondering about the connections between manipulation uh, using social media and payment fraud. And are there intersections that, that you can think of to share with us? Certainly the technologies they can use to accomplish those things, right? I mean, at the end of the day, they're trying to kind of sow confusion and create friction, if you will. And by using technologies that can um, do behavioral profiling and understand how people behave and how people react to certain stimulus, you might see that in the social media manipulation. Very similar techniques can then be applied to kind of duping the financial system and allowing the bad guys to commit fraud. So I think there's a lot of parallels. I think if you if you probably peeled the onion back one or two layers, underlying that is some very common technologies. And we're talking about machine learning. We're talking about AI. We're talking about big data. All of those things kind of come into play. And I imagine they sit underneath both. How do you fight the resources of state-sponsored actors who want to commit fraud, who essentially have unlimited resources at their disposal. It's hard. I think you got to prioritize, right? And you got to figure out, it's like anything you've got to, anything where there's limited resources is you've got to kind of pick your priorities, place your bets. And, you know, so far, the technology to protect the the payment system and the financial services industry has done a pretty good job. I mean, you know, rates of fraud um, you know, kind of per thousand transactions has come way down. So 
unfortunately, the level of attacks has gone way up. So the bad guys are still, you know, they're still taking their share. But, you know, I think it is about, and then it's, the other thing I would say is it's about taking a multi-layered approach. So when you're talking about fighting against almost unlimited resources who are using sophisticated techniques, um, you're gonna have to have multiple layers of defense, some of it protecting the underlying data, some of it protecting the applications, and then some of it protecting kind of, you know, the con where the consumers come into play. And I think we just have to keep investing. It's gonna have to become, you know, more and more a part of our business model in the industry. And I think it has. And, and I guess the question from what motivates you and what, what helps inspire you and your, your C-suite team is, is the fact that actually in some respects, you're, you're, you are the David going against the larger Goliath. Are you having, you know, having to be both innovative and scrappy? Does that help motivate you? I mean, what, what, what do you find inspires you and your team? So certainly, I think when it comes to fraud prevention, which is a big part of our business, you know, providing incredibly secure systems to our customers um, so that, you know, they can grow their businesses that, that motivates us. I think the other thing, you know, if we do that, right, if we do the secure part, right. Um, we enable commerce to happen. Right. And that's really what we're trying to do is facilitate commerce for our customers, whether it's a bank or a merchant, we want to allow them kind of business to thrive. And we, we know that, that security is a big part of our value proposition. And that, you know, I think that's very motivating for us. As we finish up, what advice do you have to organizations and, and also to consumers to, to stay safe? I figure you're the guy to ask. Continue to invest in it. It's a multi-layered approach. There is no one silver bullet technology or solution you can use to protect yourself. It's going to take a portfolio. Get your consumers involved. And right, so this is advice to businesses and to consumers. Get involved, meaning hey, if your bank or your merchant or your favorite e-commerce site gives you the ability to kind of set fraud limits and get notifications and get texts, do it. It's amazing how much more effective a system is um, when the consumer is partnered with their financial institution in preventing fraud. Um, so that's another one. And then I think consumer education is a big part of it too. You know, we're still, we're still living in days where consumers are writing down passwords and storing them in their wallets. The more education we can do to kind of prevent that kind of behavior, the better. And, you know, when your bank offers you, you know, new technology, whether it's the chip on your card or something else, you know, take advantage of it. Talking about the need to involve consumers and consumers to take the ownership to say, if you have the opportunity through your bank, through your merchant site or whatever, the reality is we all have to be a part of the solution. It can't just be solved by one individual, one group, one silver bullet. It's when the community takes ownership of this and says, we want to have better, more trusted commerce as a result. That to me is, is the most inspiring thing. And that's why I really applaud what you're doing, Mike, uh, with your company. I guess that also raises the question, David, of when you talk about the community taking ownership, what's the community? Well, the, the, the reality is that's all, that may be why you're seeing these challenges of what you talked about in terms of polarization, misinformation, social wedges is, we used to define our community as our physical neighbors, but now that you've overlaid the internet on top of it, you can know more people online than you do in your immediate neighborhood. And that's calling in questions as to what is your community. Um, but we've seen this before. Uh, when the car was invented, uh, the nation, the United States and other nations faced a challenge that they never had before, which is interstate crime could occur. You could actually physically drive to a state that you didn't reside in, do the crime and then drive back. And we had to figure out ways to, challenge, to address that. And part of that was fingerprinting and, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation and other solutions. 
So I think in this case, the community at the end of the day is going to become a combination of both who you choose to associate with both online and in person uh, in terms of your activities and your financial transactions. But also at the end of the day, I think we're going to quite frankly discover the community is ultimately global. It's all of us on the planet together. I don't know, David. I'm like, it sounds good, but I'm so skeptical of this because when we have the community, that implies that we all take responsibility and therefore no one has responsibility to do anything. Well, that's just it. I would actually say it's the other way around. When you actually meet with an audience and say, who do you think is going to solve this? Um, is it the government's solution to solve it? Is it the private sector's solution to solve it? Is it micro solutions to solve it? Uh, as, as Mike sort of indicated, they're all playing parts of it. But I think what we're really facing now in the 21st century is what I would call learned helplessness in which people feel like these issues are either too big or things like that. And so definitely an example of you're not going to do what Mike and his company is doing in terms of all the processes. But if you're given the opportunity to do a one-time password for a transaction, or you're given the opportunity to have a token that you use to actually authenticate your transactions with a little bit of friction, but it makes it better, if you choose to make that very simple, probably no more than 10-second decision of your time, you will have better outcomes than if you choose to do a completely frictionless solution where you don't want to have any involvement with a one-time password or some sort of token, and then you're surprised later when somebody's actually done something fraud in your name. And so it's not asking a lot of us, but it is saying that you can be a part of this larger ecosystem in helping to move things forward. Well, you know, speaking as a consumer, I have people in various parts of the world that I employ and that I, I pay. And the, and I'm, of course, I'm always scared about, you know, the money going out into the ether or giving some payment company intermediary access to my bank account. But on the other hand, it's also such a hassle, right? Because every time I make certain types of payments, I get interrupted and then Sometimes the credit card company construes it as a, which is a separate issue, but it's kind of related, construes, construes it as a cash advance, which means I'm now paying cash advance interest rates as opposed to a payment for a service. And I haven't lost any, haven't personally, haven't my, I've, I've lost my, my identity many times to, to data breaches, but I haven't actually been personally compromised my account. So I guess the system is working well. But Mike, it does remain a hassle though. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it does go back to the point I set, made about, hey, th those companies that you're doing business with that make it a hassle that you find unacceptable, they have an opportunity to actually fix that and to use that as a differentiator and a reason why you would, why you would continue to do business. They got to make that better, right? There are ways to have relatively frictionless experience for you as the consumer and still be highly secure. Um, and I think the companies who are figuring that out are the ones that are ultimately going to do very well and succeed in, in, you know, in their markets. Michael, one question I would ask you real quick is you're walking in a dark alley in a place that you don't know and you feel somewhat unsafe. What would you rather have in your back pocket? $10,000 in US cash or an electronic payment app or card? Which would you prefer yeah, to have? Yeah, no, no, it's an easy one, right? Of course, I'd want a digital payment method. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, that, that gets to Michael's point, which is, yes, there are opportunities to reduce friction and, and there may be some things that are a hassle, but we are still generally moving forward in a progressive 
direction that is making the world, like you said, reducing fraud. The challenge is, of course, the bad guys are increasing their volume, but reducing the incidence of fraud overall. Yeah. Well, there's certainly no doubt about that. And with that, we are out of time. I would like to thank our two guests today. Mike Bratz is with ACI Worldwide, and David Bray is with People-Centered Internet. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Michael. Everybody, you've been watching CXO Talk. Subscribe on YouTube and hit the little subscribe button on our website and subscribe to our mailing list. And we'll see you again next time. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great day. Bye-bye.